0: This is the John Oakley Show Podcast. All right, let's get right into it. Topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. Joining us on the Tuesday edition, Kevin Gadette, president of Bright Point Strategy, formerly headed the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. How are you holding up, Kevin?
1: I'm living the dream, Johnny. I'm full of chocolate chip cookies.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, a healthy diet, I see. Uh, totally. Good. Hopefully, this thing will be over sooner rather than later. Otherwise, you'll bounce into the studios. Uh, Alyssa Freeman joins us as well, PR and pop culture media expert. Hello, Alyssa. Hello, John. How are you doing? Good. Hanging in, hanging in and uh, sitting here in the bunker and uh, dispensing dollops of wisdom and joy on a daily basis. You know, just talking to Alex Berenson, I I wanted to follow up on this because, uh, you know, I've been preaching the nuclear option, going full lockdown, getting this over with, like bending the curve, showing all the signs that we're coming through this so that we can get back to some sense of normalcy. I think we're all sort of looking to... uh, the same effect, the same outcome sooner rather than later. But he actually proffered that, you know, there are going to be casualties from lost jobs, failed businesses and all the rest. He understands that there are uh, obviously serious medical concerns here and uh, numbers affixed to that. But he's saying we've got to sort of find that delicate balance from when we start to open things up again. And uh, that almost seems like heresy to speak of at this point. But he says we got to have that adult conversation, and economists have got to be involved with the medical authorities. So, Kevin Gaudet, is he right in that regard?
1: Absolutely, he is. Uh, Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, is giving a, a public address to the province this evening, 8 o'clock our time, 6 o'clock his time, where he will start talking about, I think, he says, the future of the province and what it will look like to start unwinding these freedom restrictions Um, He's the only politician who's actually starting to talk this way, which doesn't mean he's going to start doing it tomorrow, but what it does mean is he's outlined the conditions, I think, and this is what I'd like to see. I'd like politicians to treat us like adults, tell us what what do they need to see, what kind of tamping down of cases do they need to see uh, before they start eliminating the restrictions or raising them. And in that context, I'd also like to start hearing what will that look like? How will it be phased in? In what manner and time? I don't understand why so many seem to be so complacent about just accepting the restrictions on freedoms we have without hearing from the government and politicians when or how and under what conditions we can expect to see them removed.
0: Well yeah and Alex Berenson said in a lot of cases uh, these are not justified or qualified by the numbers. Uh, There are pockets where the hospitals are not overflowing. Uh, he does admit, you know, they've got a serious issue in New York and New York City specifically and other hot spots. But apart from that, then, uh, Alyssa Freeman, is this something that we need to start addressing, uh, for want of a better term, an exit strategy and uh, how we see our way through to the other end? When the numbers came out on Friday and uh, Doug Ford was saying, if we don't maintain some kind of a uh, serious lockdown, we're looking at. Uh, The worst-case scenario was like 300,000 deaths, or I guess it was 100,000, 1,600 if we maintained what we were doing, and if we really clamped down for the next couple of weeks, maybe 200. So the delta is rather appreciable between the 200 and 1,600. But beyond that, what are the telltale signs that we can maybe start opening things up a little bit? Should we have that discussion?
2: Absolutely. I think at this point, people are really tuning out what they don't want to hear, but what they do want to hear is some sort of hope. They want to hear is how long is this going on? Now, for example, myself as a media watcher, I've really had to sort of cut my media viewing in half because it's distressing. But what I do read and what I am gravitating towards, John, are those stories that show me indications of improvement. So, uh, you know, I read uh, today that um, while there were, you know, there was a little bit of a spike in deaths in New York, uh, however, the there were less hospitalizations. So I look at that and I think, okay, that's a bit of an improvement. I look at uh, the province of British Columbia and I see that there is a bit of a flattening of a curve there. And there was an article today, um, I didn't have a chance to read it yet, but there's an article today about why is this now happening in BC, the flattening of the curve? Well, I think they've had the restrictions in a little bit longer than we have. So we need to have those conversations And I think we need to stop pussyfooting around uh, the citizens of this province and this country. I understand at the beginning, you know, why you don't want to give so many dire warnings out at once so you don't, you know, create mass hysteria. But I think that there's a point where if you're coming out every day, either at 11.15 or 1 p.m. as it is in this province, and you're giving us sort of like, what is the news of the day? There are some conversations that we need to at least know are going on and while we may not have an answer at the end of the day at the end of the week i think that canadians and ontarians deserve to know that we do have an exit strategy
0: kevin do you think some of it is dependent on the credibility of the people who are messaging i mean they made such a hash of the messaging on masks you're wondering uh really i mean because we know dr tam was all over the place on that one is there going to be confidence in whatever they pronounce?
1: So this raises issues about uh, communications delivery and confidence one derives from quality and effective communications, where we had public health officials, political officials, taking positions early, and the positions they took were adamant. They were forceful. They were unambiguous. And, in fact, anybody who questioned them, including conservatives, for example, were deemed racist when folks talked about closing borders and raising uh, concerns about risks. And then shortly thereafter, they'd flip-flop. So the list of flip-flops by the politicians um, and by Dr. Tam, federally the chief medical officer of health, um, the fact that they are 100% certain one day, and then two days later, they're 100% certain in the opposite direction, raises, as you point out, important credibility questions. And when these officials are inconsistent. It reduces the confidence level of people who are requested to follow or required by law to follow their, 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 their guidance. So uh, I see that as an important problem. And one of the ways to reduce that problem is to increase transparency uh, and accountability. And you do that by laying out the facts and laying out scenarios and being honest and clear and sincere, something that I think some premiers are doing better than our prime minister, for example.
0: Yeah, I was going to pick up on that because, of course, on Friday when Doug Ford uh, said this is going to be a shocker when the numbers come out, and uh, they released them now. You know, however much credence we put in the modeling, because we just heard a guy uh, who was questioning some of the models, uh, but our own Prime Minister hasn't even allowed uh, their own modeling federally. To be, they're talking about well, we need to get it all aggregated and so on and so forth. Uh, is there an issue of credibility, say, with the federal government on this one, Alyssa?
2: Absolutely, and you know when you. Like, oh, we have to look at the credibility, and we have to run the numbers, and we have to blah, blah, blah. Those are all just holding statements, because maybe what they're seeing is scaring them, and they don't want to, to scare us, too. Who knows? But, you know, when you work with an epidemiologist, uh, many of us had. I mean, these are the people who study disease trends, they always give you, you know, the, the spectrum of scenarios. So you, you know, you get on the low end, and then you get on the high end, and then you try and, you know, mitigate somewhere in the middle. Um you know, I've, I've honestly I've, I've stopped listening to Trudeau, and, and you know sometimes I have the TV on mute, and I'm happy just to see the, uh, you know, <laughs> the little the subtitles come up that 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 synthesize what he has to say. Um, I th- I think that at some point, you know, I think that he has to come out with some very very definitive um, messages and the other thing too to kevin's point is like this is not the time for flip-flopping folks you know i was really on board with you don't need masks and the only people who need masks are healthcare workers i really i bought into that message and now i'm looking around for square scarves and and rubber bands and that's a whole that's a behavior change that you're expecting you know canadians to do on a dime so be consistent be truthful yeah. Tell us what we need and then tell us what the end result will be as a result of that. And, you know, those are very, very simple to name, but they there's certainly in terms of best practice messaging, not really happening.
0: Well, Alyssa, right, if they said it, tomorrow. All right, Kevin, go ahead.
1: Well, I wanted to amplify on Alyssa's comments, which I agree. And in the context of the masks, uh, because there's a credibility challenge and they flip-flopped, it's hard not to infer that they weren't truthful and that becomes a confidence issue so it actually seems to me like the evidence was clear for many months at least a month that there are benefits to masks both to prevent being becoming ill and to prevent the spread and the government i think probably said the office, said that they weren't going to be helpful not because they believed the the medical advice but because they were short on the ability to deliver quality masks which was a, a a supply chain problem in great part of their own making and, and lack of preparedness and again these become these become confidence issues, and the confidence matters not just because we want to throw brick brats at the government and and be difficult as fun as that might be um, it the confidence becomes relevant when the government starts to make continued and possibly even bigger asks of a population and if it loses that confidence they're not going to get the the population to follow those dictates
0: i was going to ask if uh tomorrow they were to say look we're going to make masks mandatory now out in public uh because indonesia just did that the other day uh do you think people would follow that directive or uh, would there be even more confusion and a credibility issue in play Alyssa?
2: You know, whenever you have a directive, you also have to have, you know, what the answer is and what's the call to action for Canadians. So if you say to people, okay, listen, we advise that you wear a mask, uh, I mean, you have to say, I mean, this is the reality. If we don't have enough masks for healthcare workers, yeah. we do have enough masks for every man, woman, and child in Canada. So there has to be some sort of very clear call to action on how you create your own mask, and that's been happening, and that has been happening, but in sort of dribs and drabs if you happen to be looking at it. I followed a video today. Um, It's not hard to find. But there has to be some very clear call to action that Canadians can actually uh, follow and pursue with confidence and not with fear. And that is the deal with this. So if we know that our frontline medical workers are not having enough masks and other PPE, then what are you going to tell Canadians? So I'll be interested to see what that follow-through is.
0: By the way, uh, letting the federal stockpile slide to a point where we didn't have adequate supplies for front care, frontline healthcare workers, is that something that ought to be severely criticized or is it just the case there was no way to anticipate the scale and scope of COVID-19, Kevin?
1: Well, I actually think that uh, there's going to be a timing question around accountability on these measures. I I struggle to understand why we weren't prepared for two reasons. Uh, I might be a bit of a, a virus hobbyist in my personal life and followed this from its inception in China. I kind of saw it coming, and I'm no expert, so I struggle to understand why our actual experts didn't see it. And relatedly, they kept saying things like, we learned from SARS, we learned lessons from SARS. It, it starts to feel like the only lesson they learned from SARS was to say the statement, we learned lessons from SARS. So not, not to mention, when the government of Ontario uh, and the federal government have stockpiles, it seems to me a fairly op- obvious rotational issue where the government could purchase, centralize and store PP&E, e, productive equipment, and then distribute it on an ongoing basis and then replenish it as needed so that it stays fresh and stockpiled and that both federally and provincially they would have done this. And when the federal government pays $675 million a year to public health, uh, I struggled to understand what they were doing with that money if it wasn't these types of things. Instead, I worry that these bureaucrats were running around talking about sugar taxes and other stupid, wasteful ancillary activities which kept them away from focusing on the things that they should have been doing.